Well, we're talking about a little kid today, so all very appropriate. We are actually finishing out our short series we did on the songs of Christmas, and today we're on the fourth uh, song, the Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin for You Now Dismiss. And we're in the uh, middle of Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38, and uh, the stories of Simeon and Anna. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, in the second chapter, and then listen carefully as this is the Word of God. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray, as always, that you would give us understanding. Help us to see Jesus this morning. Help us to understand how much it means to have Jesus come as our Savior. For this, we need your grace, and by your Spirit, give this to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, it's common to open the paper and to read about the economy. We've been reading about the economy every day for as long as I can remember. Ten years ago, it was the battle between the old economy and the new economy. The old economy was represented by the Dow Jones and the Fortune 500, long-established companies like GE and General Motors. The new economy was represented by the NASDAQ and stock options and powerful young companies like Cisco and Microsoft. Today you'll read more about the digital economy or the big economy. You might read about the down economy or the recovery economy. 
or you might read about the green economy or the global economy. Now, if you read the pundits and the analysts, uh, some will tell you that the new slash digital slash green economy is dead as we watch the old slash big slash global economy giants simply roll over the young upstarts. And there's lots of evidence for that. Many of you can remember the dot-com crash uh, back in uh, 2001, I think. And uh, at that time, hundreds of thousands of jobs were lost and people were left with lots of worthless paper that were formerly stock options. But there's a whole another school of pundits and analysts who say the world has been so changed by internet technology that the old slash big slash global economy giants are only making it because they've become the new slash digital slash green economy companies. And those that don't change won't last. And they have evidence too, as seen in the housing and financial crash of recent years. So who's right and who really knows? Well, it's clearly not me. So if you're waiting for that big stock tip, you're sorely uh, going to be disappointed. However, one thing that we do know is that uh, 60 to 80 years from now, we're going to be able to look back with 2020 hindsight and with the perspective of time, see how it all turned out and who was right and who was wrong. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have a, a perfect idea or or a very good idea of what exactly happened in these tumultuous economic times. Now, we deal with that a lot in our life. There's a lot of times when you know you're in the middle of a change, but you don't know how that change is going to turn out. You don't know what the end result is going to be. And you don't know if this is going to be helpful or painful or both. And there's lots of times in the Bible we find people in just that same situation. And today's passage is one of those times. Something is happening here. Great prophecies have been given to Joseph and Mary, but they don't know how those prophecies are going to play out. We know we have the perspective of time. We have God's word. We're told. But Joseph and Mary had a long wait ahead of them. There was no New Testament. They didn't know any of this stuff. They had been given all these prophecies, and they didn't know what to do with them. They knew they were in the middle of a change, but had no idea what the end result would be. And so today, in this passage, we see that they have something to learn from two people who know what a long wait really is. We pick up the story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and this is really... Uh, if I can use those terms, an old economy, new economy shift uh, going on here in this passage. Throughout the book of Luke, uh, the uh, four uh, Sundays that we've looked in uh, Luke 1 and 2, we've seen the work of God revealed in pretty ordinary lives. Clearly, the birth of Christ has inaugurated the new economy, if I can use that term. But all the people that we've seen in the story thus far are old economy people. If you remember, we started with Elizabeth, who's named after Aaron's wife, Aaron being the first priest in the Old Testament. And we met her husband, Zechariah, who is a priest who served at the temple. And we saw the birth of John the Baptist, who is really the last Old Testament prophet, even though he appears in the New Testament. 
And we met Joseph and Mary, descendants of King David. And in this passage, we meet Simeon and Anna, two people wise and spiritual things and devoted to worshiping God. And our story starts with a covenant dedication. Lots of blanks in today's uh, uh, insert. So those of you that fill that out, you're just really going to have to pay attention today. But I know you can do it. So we start with a covenant dedication. Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, speaking of Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now Mary and Joseph have to follow the law uh, as it says what has to be done with firstborn sons. And first they have the circumcision ceremony where the covenant sign is applied and his name is given. And while both are significant, I really want to focus on Jesus' name because this is what's really different. See, Jesus' name literally means God is salvation. Remember that both Mary and Joseph have been told separately by the angel Gabriel to name the child Jesus. And I think how it was presented to Joseph is most significant because it says, Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Remember, meaning God is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a key verse in the Bible. For he will save his people from their sins. Not all people, not any people, his people it's also a great text to support the doctrine of election, but that's another sermon. Uh, he is salvation. He will save his people. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph talked about this probably hundreds of times. But when the time came for Joseph to utter this divinely chosen name, it must have been, I would think, emotionally overwhelming to stand there and say, this child shall be called God is salvation. This child, our baby, is our salvation. How about that for an entry in your baby book? Our baby is our salvation. We hold in our hands a baby who will be God's salvation for his covenant people. How could we not dedicate him to God? And so in obedience to the law, they go to the temple to do just that and dedicate their firstborn son to God. But first they have to offer a purification sacrifice for Mary as is required by the law. And we see here, and I think the reason this is here, is they give the poor person's sacrifice. This offering comes from back in Leviticus chapter uh, 12. It says, When the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And what we see is Mary and Joseph's offering here is a humble offering. It's a public declaration of their poverty. They come as people who can't afford a lamb. 
And once again, we see that Christianity began, Christianity begins, it always begins with a state of neediness. We saw that in Mary's song, the Magnificat. We saw it in the angel's song and their announcement to a bunch of outcast shepherds. We see it in virtually everyone who's shown up so far in the first two chapters of Luke. None of them have it made. And God did not and does not come to the self-sufficient. That's a truth that we have to remind ourselves of over and over again. Even those of us who know Christ and know grace can turn that into sort of our own personal, prideful adequacy. And that's not right. It's not biblical. Our only adequacy is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.5 reminds us of that. It says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Mary and Joseph were not chosen because of their status or their achievements, but because of their simplicity and their humility. And to drive the point home, when we arrive at the temple, we meet two more simple and humble people, Simeon and Anna. And they really serve as covenant witnesses. They're coming to a covenant dedication, and they're supposed to be covenant witnesses. And it says, we pick up verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he came in the Spirit into the temple... When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and here's his song, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now there's a lot of stuff in those verses, so I'm just going to hit the high points. First thing is we see there's revealed hope. Revealed hope, starting in verse 29. This is the fourth song of Advent that we find in the first two chapters of Luke. Taken from the Latin, it is called the Nunc Dimittis, or You Now Dismiss, which is the opening line of the song. And although we gain accuracy from the ESV, which says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace. Some versions say die in peace. We do lose some of the poetry of the song. Uh, Now the song is about the hope 
revealed in the presentation of Jesus. Simeon says, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This child was and is God's salvation. God has promised Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Savior. And he sings about this salvation being offered to all people, and that's true. The gospel message is offered to all, though we know that only those in whom the Holy Spirit has been working will respond. But we also know that we have no idea in whom the Holy Spirit is working, so the offer is given to everyone. And Simeon makes that clear right from the start of Jesus' life. He sings the last line of his song, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Both Jew and Gentile are included here. Gives us a preview of Galatians 3, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's our hope, that we belong to Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And again, our hope is not in what we can do or in what we can say or in what we can accomplish. And our hope is not even in what we believe because that's still depending on us. Our hope is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, about whom Paul writes in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's our hope. Hope has a name. It's Jesus And Simeon is so blessed by God that he is among the first to realize it. Now imagine how Mary and Joseph's hearts were soaring at hearing these words, at listening to this song, confirmation coming from someone else. But then Simeon has other words too. And for Mary, they're words of revealed pain. Look at verses 34 and 35. Revealed pain. Simeon blessed them, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. But in verse 35, there's a parenthesis. And it says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon tells Mary that although she is blessed among women, she's going to know great pain. The exaltation of the salvation of God brings with it a sword that will pierce your very soul. I can't help but think that Mary must have been stunned. I mean, we don't often use the words blessed and pain in the same sentence. But it fits. God doesn't promise easy blessings. Some of the blessings that people in the Bible receive, some of the blessings that people in this room receive will come about because of great pain in our lives. And once again, we have to face the pain of an inadequate life before we can receive the joy that comes from that one adequate life. 
because it's only when we see our own inadequacy that we're ready for God's grace. And Mary just has to be stunned by these words. And before she has time to react, Anna enters the scene. And I really think this is another uh, act of God's grace. She confirms the earlier words of Simeon and begins to tell everyone around them that here is the revealed Redeemer. The revealed Redeemer, starting in verse 36 and uh, finishing in verse 38, it says, She began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Simeon has just confronted Mary with the shocking reality by saying that a, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I just must have been terrifying words to hear. I mean, you're there with your eight-day-old firstborn son. Everybody's praising God, giving thanks to God. Uh, everything's going great. And it's like, oh, by the way, there's going to be unbelievable pain coming into your life. How do you respond to that? You're standing there with your new baby. I think it just, you know, it just must have stunned her into silence, just standing there not knowing how to react. It was terrifying words. And, you know, I'm sure Mary's emotions were, you know, like on a roller coaster, you know, she's going from light and glory to a sword in her soul. But at that moment, God sends Anna, this 84-year-old widow, and she simply speaks of Jesus and thanks God for him. She doesn't trivialize the sword, takes the whole situation into account, but I think she sees the sword in light of the gospel. So she spoke to Mary of the Redeemer and the redemption that he came to accomplish. And this older woman spoke words of life that pointed the younger woman to God's glorious deeds and his might and his wonders, all wrapped up in this little bundle in Mary's arms. And Anna spoke of Jesus to what is now a wounded woman. And Mary listened. She left the temple and fulfilled her mission of mothering the Messiah. And I would think when there is a sword in the soul of a younger woman, she ought to find an older woman who is compelled to tell her of Jesus and to listen until her heart begins to be thankful for him, how profoundly and wondrously and wonderfully simple. Now put yourself in this situation. They have arrived. They've come to the temple. They're entering the temple. There's this old guy there who grabs the baby and starts singing and praising God. And, uh, and there's this other older woman there who's telling everyone who could listen that this baby is the Redeemer come to deliver Jerusalem. And there's this couple there and this baby. And, and I think it must have been quite a scene. And a lot of people probably thought they were all nuts. You know, it just strikes me as the kind of scene that people walk way around out of fear they might get too close. You know, who knows what could happen. And actually, the Bible doesn't record what anyone else thought. We have no record of people rushing up to see the baby, no record of people running away from these strange people. We just don't know. 
What we do know is that God blessed two elderly people with a revelation that a Savior, the Redeemer, has come to them in the presence of this little baby. And what we do know about these two people, Simeon and Anna, you know, why would God choose them for this special blessing? Why would these two older people be among the first to recognize and to understand what's going on here, who this really is? I mean, everybody else sort of probably looked down on Mary and Joseph. You know, she got uh, pregnant before she was married. And, uh, you know, they had to go back to their town and everybody knew and, you know, they probably, everybody sort of felt bad for them. It must have been amazing to arrive at the temple. They're just trying to obey the law. And here's Simeon and Anna. And they're ready to sing and praise God. And so I was thinking about that, you know, because we, we know nothing about these two people other than what's in this one passage right here. But the little that we do know leads me to conclude that Simeon and Anna have led lives of contentment. Lives of contentment. I think the application goes in a couple of directions. One is to recognize the fulfillment of all expectations has come in the person of Christ. And viewing this story from the perspective of today, the 21st century, I think Christ's second coming comes to mind. We should anticipate Christ with a similar sense of expectation. Like Simeon, we should long to see him with our own eyes and treasure uh, the expectation that one day we will see him. Jesus often uh, told and reinforced that idea in his parables time and time again. He encourages us to live in the expectation of his coming. So Simeon is a model of living expectantly and uh, having faithful anticipation, and uh, that should characterize the Christian life. We should live in a way that is expecting Jesus to come again and anticipating that and living faithfully because of that. And I don't think there's much doubt uh, that Simeon and Anna led faithful lives. But there's some elements of their faith that led them to lead contented lives as well. First, it seems they had a constant faith, a constant faith. There's four blanks here. The second word is faith in all of them. So I'm so original. As best as we can tell, they're both elderly. Anna's in her 80s. Some scholars believe the text says she was widowed for 84 years. If that's the case, <clears throat> it would put her over 100. That's a pretty remarkable age for the first century. We're not told how old Simeon is. But since he's uh, ready for the Lord to take him, we can safely assume, I think, that he's an elderly man. We know they're both faith-filled people. They've been around for a long time. We're told that Anna stayed in the temple in regular and consistent worship. Simeon is called a righteous and devout man. It seems there's a constancy to their faith that has lasted for a long time. There's sort of an evenness to their life that only a steadfast faith can bring. We also know they had a devout faith. A devout faith. They really believed what God said. Anna was a prophetess, someone who declared God's words to other people. <clears throat> Simeon had received a promise from God. We're not told how, but he fully trusted in that promise. 
he knew he would not die without seeing the Savior. However, he, re- however, uh, he actually received that promise. Like the Old Testament prophets, he believed that what God said, God did. And the timing just wasn't all that important. So they had a constant faith, a devout faith. We can see they both have a hungry faith. A hungry faith. They really believed that what God was doing was what counted. Not what they did, not what anyone else did, but what God did. And I think they personified the paradox of being profoundly empty. They were humble and simple people, and yet they're profoundly full. Because not only had they seen the Savior, they had held him in their hands. They personified the beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A number of years ago, I got this great puzzle. And it shows Simeon holding a baby. I don't know if you can see it well. Simeon and the baby right here. And he's singing. And uh, I'll have that down here. Anybody wants to see it. I think it's just a great picture of them just being overjoyed by what God has done. They have come to God's house hungry, and they have received as few in the history of the world have ever received. Imagine meeting Simeon in heaven, you know, sort of, what'd you do? I held Jesus. That's pretty cool. And finally, we see they have a patient faith. A patient faith. They've been waiting a long time. They're pretty patient people. It says that Anna's been worshiping in the temple for years and years, almost longer, not quite, but almost longer, as most people in this room are old. Simeon is waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. How long? We don't know. But he came to the temple looking for the promised one of God, and one day, with trembling arms, he lifts this small baby from his startled virgin mom, and he sings. The early church called Simeon Theodoches, the God-receiver. And I think it was a remarkable sight, just as you saw on this uh, puzzle. And I think Simeon personifies the prophecy of Micah 7.7, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What tremendous faith. Simeon and Anna, these two people, are truly content, for they have a God they can trust. In the King James, verse uh, 25, in the introduction of Simeon, says, uh, this same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. We're going to finish today with a Christmas carol that's uh, uh, based on this. It's one you've heard many times. But I want you to sing and to listen to the first verse very carefully because it's drawn from this song that an old man sang to his Savior some 2,000 years ago. A very old, very content, very happy man. Let me finish by reading you a prayer that I found. It just seemed to fit. It's called a prayer of contentment. And I got it in an email. It forced me to think about some of these things that I don't think about. It's forced me to think about things I take for granted, things that I thought about, uh, if I thought about for even a moment, would make my life much more content. So I thought I would share it with you. It says, prayer of contentment. Even though I clutch my blanket and growl when the alarm rings, 
Thank you, Lord, that I can hear. There are many who are deaf. And even though I keep my eyes closed against the morning light as long as possible, that's true for me. Thank you, Lord, that I can see. Many are blind. Even though I huddle in my bed and put off rising, thank you, Lord, that I have the strength to rise. There are many who are bedridden. And even though the first hour of my day is hectic, when socks are lost, toast is burned, tempers are short, children are loud, thank you, Lord, for my family. There are many who are lonely. And even though our breakfast table never looks like the pictures in the magazines, and the menu is at times unbalanced, thank you, Lord, for the food we have. There are many who are hungry. And even though the routine of my job often is monotonous, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to work. There are many who have no job. Even though I grumble and bemoan my fate from day to day and wish my circumstances were not so modest, thank you, Lord, for life. That's contentment. We started a new year now, and it can be a year where we live contented lives, even though many things may happen that are beyond our control. Or we can live resentful lives because we don't have control. And it all comes down how do we view our own lack of self-sufficiency. We can resent it and get angry and whine and complain, and most people do. Or we can embrace it because it is that very thing, our lack of self-sufficiency, that drives us to Christ and forces us to depend on him. The truth is, you are not going to be totally self-sufficient. And it will either make you resentful or it will make you contented. And Luke wants us to see that the Jesus story is not just about him, but it's also about us. And these texts, particularly these Advent stories, these Advent songs, if you think about it, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. And yet they reveal God at work, and we see how God approaches people, and he goes to the simple and the humble and the outsiders, and he makes them insiders, people who have a relationship with God, people who become followers of Christ. People are called to live a life that looks to God because he's poured out his grace on those of us who understand our own inadequacy and have turned to Christ and received forgiveness and new life. And that's grace, getting what you don't deserve. And Luke tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace, died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, will return to establish its presence over all of creation. And the church has to show what that grace looks like, especially when we're not very self-sufficient. That's why we're here. And all those who know it said, Amen. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Dear Lord, it's just a couple weeks after Christmas. Most of us, most of our neighbors have taken down their lights and their trees, and we're moving on to the next thing. Most of us are impatient. Traffic doesn't move fast enough. Waiters don't bring our food soon enough. The mail isn't delivered quick enough. This year, the after-Christmas sales began before Christmas. And I'm no exception to this hurried way of life. Lord, one of the reasons I love Simeon is he was a man who lived differently than I do. We know so little about him. We know he was righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
anticipating the fulfillment of promises that only God can keep. Jesus, eight days after your birth, Simeon took you into his arms, you by whose arms all things have been made and are sustained, the very arms that would be stretched out on a cross. And whether or not Simeon expected to die soon, the peace that resulted from that changed everything. Lord, it's only because you've embraced us in the gospel that we can have the peace that Simeon had. For you are God's salvation. For Israel, for Gentiles, for us. In you we find the consolation and comfort that can't be found anywhere else. You are our forgiveness, our righteousness, our steadiness in the storms, our sanity in the chaos, our hope in the uncertainties. And as we're on the verge of a new year, as we're just starting out, 2011. May the peace of your grace help us to live by the pace of your peace. Jesus, slow us all down. Settle us down. Focus us on yourself. Focus us for living in light of the full and final consolation of your second coming. Lord, if we're going to be in a hurry about anything this year, may it be to linger with you, to, to stay longer with you, and everything else will take care of itself. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of your Son. Grant that we would know that we need it. Grant that we would understand it. Grant that we would believe it. And I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.